Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. Hey, everybody. We got a great one today, you know, for a change. Ann Applebaum, staff writer for the Atlantic Monthly, brilliant and prolific journalist on Russia, on Eastern Europe, on democracy and and disinformation. She's my first guest who's married to a former foreign minister of Poland. Anne is joined by Joe Cerincioni. Uh Joe has been with us before, an old Washington hand on defense matters, worked with uh, Hillary Clinton and John Kerry when they were secretaries of uh, state. A particular focus of Joe's career has been nuclear disarmament, and of course, uh, Putin's threat to use nukes has been hovering over uh, this war from its beginning. This is an incredibly informative interview, and you will come away knowing a lot more about the subject, you know, for a change. Now, of course, the week's big news was the leak of Justice Alito's draft overturning Roe v. Wade. So next week, we will have our SCOTUS expert, Dahlia Lithwick, joined by former U.S. attorney, the brilliant Joyce Vance. So we will be having two great podcasts in a row for the very first time. This has never happened before on the Al Franken podcast. So before we go to Ann Applebaum and Joe Cerincioni, a little discussion on Justice Alito's uh, draft decision. Of course, uh, it was leaked for the first time. Uh, the Supreme Court's in-house police, led by Marshal Gail Curley, will investigate who leaked it. Uh, but Ted Cruz knows that Marshal Curley can limit her search uh, to clerks uh, for the three liberal justices. What it means is that there was some angry left-wing law clerk who breached the trust to his or her justice, who breached the trust to the Supreme Court, who breached the trust to the American people, and took a first draft of an opinion and decided to leak it to everyone. Now, the reason you know Ted's right is because of how sure he is of it. If it ends up that Biden wins in November, I hope he doesn't, I don't think he will, but if he does, I guarantee you the week after the election, suddenly all those Democratic governors, all those Democratic mayors will say, everything's magically better. Go back to work, go back to school. Suddenly the problems are solved. You won't even have to wait for Biden to be sworn in. So uh, given Ted's track record, I'd say the leaker isn't a liberal clerk, but Justice Sam Alito. He's very proud of this draft and knows that, you know, there are some crazy things in it, stuff he's very proud of, but that that can't possibly survive. For example, this. The Constitution makes no express reference to a right to obtain an abortion. 
that's <laughs> that's in his that's in his uh, opinion here. Well, let me tell you why the Constitution makes no express reference to a right to obtain an abortion. The founding fathers were men. I myself had figured that out in in grade school, and in the Constitution, men were given the right to vote, not women. Men were given the right to own property, not women. You know, because men, some men, were given the right to own property in the Constitution. Women, some women, married women, were given the right to own property only 60 years later. And because men, some men, white property-owning men, were given the right to vote in the Constitution, it was only a matter of time, just, just 130 years, that women got the right to vote. But men, unfortunately, were not given the right to an abortion in the Constitution. And there's a reason for that. Men can't get pregnant. And so, as Alito writes in his landmark decision, the Constitution makes no express reference to a right to obtain an abortion. You know, I'm thinking a liberal clerk did release it to show how fucking stupid and hateful this decision is. Now, is there any evidence in Alito's history that maybe he personally has a, a hostility toward women? Well, do you remember in the uh, SCOTUS hearings for Katanji Jackson how a number of Republicans brought up how badly Republican nominees had been treated in the past in their hearings, and they brought up Alito? What was that about? Well, it seems that when Sam Alito applied to work in the Reagan White House, he could think of only one organization that he had ever belonged to, and that was Concerned Alumni of Princeton. Now, what had Concerned Alumni of Princeton been so concerned about? The state of the language labs? No. No, what the concerned alumni of Princeton have been so concerned about was the admission of women to Princeton. The alums went apeshit, but that wasn't actually their only issue. They, they also didn't like the idea of minority uh, students either. Of course, Alito needed uh, four other justices to sign on, and he got them, including Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. Now, you'll remember that Susan Collins, the supposed pro-choice senior senator from Maine, voted for uh, both Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and assured everyone, including Maine voters, that they had told her that they opposed overturning Roe v. Wade. In our meeting this afternoon, Judge Kavanaugh assured me that Roe v. Wade was settled law. Remember that? Of course, any idiot knows that settled law means settled by the Supreme Court and that the court can overturn settled law, which 
is what this decision, if it holds, will do. Now, I was on the Judiciary Committee, but I wasn't there for Kavanaugh. Now, I want to play Diane Feinstein questioning Kavanaugh about this. Once again, tell us why you believe Roe is settled law. And if you could, do you believe it is correctly settled? Roe v. Wade is an important precedent of the Supreme Court. It's been reaffirmed many times. It was reaffirmed in... Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992, when the court specifically considered whether to reaffirm it or whether to overturn it. In that case, uh, in great detail, the three-justice opinion of Justice Kennedy, Justice Souter, and Justice O'Connor went through all the factors, the stare decisis factors, analyzed those, and decided to reaffirm Roe. That makes uh, Casey precedent on precedent. It's been relied on. Casey itself has been cited as authority in subsequent cases, such as Glucksburg and other cases. Uh, So that precedent on precedent is quite important as you think about uh, stare decisis in this context. Now, why didn't any Democrat just follow up with, now, Judge Kavanaugh, that doesn't that doesn't mean anything, does it? I mean, you could very well vote to overturn Roe, couldn't you? Now, we will get into this next week with the great Dahlia Lithwick and brilliant Joyce Vance. But now we go to Ukraine and the brilliant Ann Applebaum and the handsome Joe Cirincione. A great one, you know, for a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example... Let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Where are we now? I... Things have seemed to have gone badly for Putin from the very start. And sometimes we get excited about that, but it just seems like that makes it worse for everybody. 
So I'm not sure it's worse for everybody, but it's true that we're at a perhaps a turning point, perhaps a halfway point, perhaps something else in which the outcome is far from clear. Yeah, It's true that the Ukrainians did really well and far better than anyone expected in the first part of the war. And it's true that the Russians retreated from the northern part of the country and they are no longer seeking to sack Kiev or take over the government. And that all that is great. All that's fabulous. Okay. It was a it was a very impressive uh, display um, of actually how well the Ukrainian army had modernized itself and how rapidly the society mobilized. And it was extraordinary. But what's happening now is that all of the Russian forces are now concentrated in the eastern part of the country, where they are lobbing a lot of heavy weapons and ammunition and bombs at the Ukrainian army, the largest part of the Ukrainian army, which is there, seeking to encircle it, seeking to perhaps take extra territory, perhaps to partition the country. Um, and the outcome of that is not yet certain. And actually, when I was in Kiev a couple of weeks ago, President Zelensky said that he still feared that the outcome of that, if they did manage to do that, if they did manage to occupy much of eastern Ukraine, then Kiev would once again be in danger because then they might make an assault on the capital from the east. So we are not at the stage yet where anybody can declare victory. Now, Joe, uh, we just keep sending in more and more arms. And my sense is more and more sophisticated arms. This is both the United States and all of NATO, right? Yes. Is there a certain point at which the sophistication of our weapons has exceeded theirs? I think that's happening right now. The kinds of equipment that the U.S. and uh, NATO allies are sending to Ukraine just in the last few weeks is qualitatively different than what we've been sending. So not just uniforms and flak jackets and uh, small caliber ammunitions, but now heavy weaponry. This is, we're talking about armored personnel carriers, ar artillery, howitzers. Some are even sending uh, tanks uh, into Ukraine. And this is going to be extremely important in what Anne has just described as the Eastern Frontier, then the Donbass region, where Russia is moving massed armor tanks and backed up by artillery and rocket systems to try to devastate the dug-in Ukrainian forces. And let me just give you one example of how this weaponry can make a difference. Most of the long-range um, artillery pieces, we call them howitzers, that the U.S. pledged in just, just a couple of weeks ago have now arrived in Ukraine, and Ukrainians have been trained on how to use these weapons. These uh, M77 towed artillery pieces can outrange the Russian guns. So while the Russian guns can fire about 18 miles, these American howitzers can fire 25 miles. So you can put these in relatively safe positions and attack the Russian forces and blunt their advance. In addition, we're shipping them hundreds of thousands of rounds of, of artillery projectiles, some of which are quite sophisticated. The Excalibur precision-guided artillery round. It's expensive, but it is the equivalent of a smart bomb. Like instead of dumb bombs being dropped from airplanes, we have precision-guided bombs. We can sure. do the same with artillery, with fins on these things. This artillery round can fly 25 miles and strike within five yards of its target. So you give the Ukrainians this kind of firepower, and you have a real chance to have the Ukrainians not just blunt the offensive, but perhaps reverse it. Now, I don't know much about uh, weapons and targeting weapons, but does that mean that when you send it off, it's going to go within this 
diameter of where you send it, or yeah. does it change where it's going? Can you change where it's going after you've uh, sent it? No, you give it oh, a, okay, a, a okay. the coordinates and it flies to that precise point using GPS coordinates. I see. So let's say you're getting shot at by them. Can you figure out where, exactly where that's coming from and then just send it right back and go right back? At the, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I know exactly what you're saying. That's an excellent point. Yes, we are also sending them um, radars that can track incoming artillery, rocket, and mortar rounds and pinpoint the location of the firing units. And once you have that, you then give that information to your artillery crew and they target the location. And do they have that? Do they have that from us? The Ukrainians are getting it now. Yeah. So the Russians have that technology. Yes, that's correct. Oh. Well, and now we're, we're arming the Ukraines with these kinds of systems. You know, at the very beginning of this, Putin put his nuclear arsenal on alert. Is that how he put it? He does that periodically. Uh, he He's actually been using nuclear threats, usually at Poland, sometimes at Germany for the last decade or so, and everybody else had just got used to it. But I guess in America, we just heard it. But it doesn't invade these countries. <laughs> in other words, no, this zone is a little bit different because it's like, you know, it, it, he's basically saying, I'm putting my nuclear arsenal on alert. And if, if NATO, you come in, I'll use it. I mean, that's he, he's, threat, he's doing right? it for the same reason. He's doing it as a way of frightening everybody. I mean, it's a, it doesn't, I mean, of course it's dangerous and we must take it seriously. And that's what we're going to talk about. But part of the purpose of it is to scare NATO so that we won't give Ukraine weapons, so that we won't help, so that we will stay away from the conflict. I mean, it, it, it has made us not do things, right? Like, yes. Uh, yes, it has. So, so what exactly had, I, I remember some, what, fighters, right? Some uh, planes that we were going to get from Poland, and then Poland was going to send them to Ramstein or something, and then we didn't do that? Yes, I think that that was partly a, that was a kind of misunderstanding. I don't think the Poles had warned anybody that they were going to do <laughs> this. Um, I think it it was um, the, the idea of planes flying from a U.S. Army base right into Ukraine and landing there bothered people at the time. Um, I should say, and maybe we can just go right ahead and talk about this. I mean, I think that the fear of escalation was worse a few weeks ago before the Russian retreat. So once the Russians retreated from north of Kiev, it became clear that they can retreat. In other words, that this isn't some kind of mad war to the death in which, you know, no rational calculations are being made. So in other words, they are capable of retreat and they were capable of changing their war aims. And that meant that this is not some kind of existential life or death conflict that has to end in nuclear wars. So I think that our fear of that has fallen off a little bit, even as the rhetoric in Russian state media gets worse. I know you uh, pay a lot of attention to propaganda and how lies are spread around the world and et cetera. Are we penetrating them at all? Are Russians beginning to hear anything new from us? while they're also seeing your bodies come home. Is there any change in what's going on in terms of the Russian populace seeing what's going on in Ukraine or hearing about it? So on if they don't have access to VPN or some very sophisticated way of using media, they don't see anything. 
they're not being shown anything on Russian state television, which is 100% state controlled. They still haven't been told that this is an actual war. They've been told it's a special military operation. Euphemisms are being used and they have not been told how many people have died. One has to assume that eventually, as bodies come home, rumors will circulate. And there have been a number of attempts, actually the Ukrainians have organized attempts even to call Russians or to try and get through telephone contacts and personal contacts, messages into Russia. And there are a number of, as I said, independent Russian newspapers and magazines and websites and even Russian you know, video operations that post things that can be accessed by some people. So there's a part of the population that can see what's happening. But mostly it's very shut off in a way that we would now find hard to imagine um, that you can actually shut out off a country. Most Russians get their information from television news. Most of them don't get their information from the internet. They aren't seeing anything what we're seeing. Oh, I've been hearing that since the beginning of this. I was just wondering if there's been any change in that. And it doesn't sound like there's been, if if any, not, not much at all. No, well, we don't. We also don't really know. Um, as there are no news reporters there, it's very hard to know what's happening in some parts of you know provincial Russia. I mean, there may well be a rumor mill. There may well, you know, the, the few people who do have information may well be telling people. But no, we haven't. We, as in the Western world or the democratic world, haven't made any impact that that is visible. Now, I think in the last couple of days, though, we haven't we seen the Russians starting to fire at more infrastructure and rail sites and things like that and hitting Kiev a little bit. Are, are we seeing a, a change there at all? Yes, I think the railway strikes are because they've realized that so many people are coming in and out of Ukraine on the trains, um, including all these Western leaders. That's how Boris Johnson and EU leaders are are coming to Kiev. And so I think that's an answer to that. And I think the strikes in Kiev and elsewhere in the country, I mean, they seem to be sometimes aimed at military infrastructure, other kinds of civilian, you know, water tanks and, and, you know, water plants and so on. And that may be an attempt to, you know, to try and uh, to weaken the war effort. I mean, it has almost the opposite effect because it makes people even angrier, I think, inside Ukraine. How how do our weapons get to the east? Mm -hmm. I mean, don't we send them by rail? The Russians have said that they consider these transport nodes legitimate military targets, and they recognize what we were talking about at the beginning of the show, the importance of these weapons coming into Ukraine and what it adds to the Ukrainian ability to resist the invasion. And they are intentionally targeting rail hubs and the highways to try to slow down the transport of this heavy equipment. Most of these artillery pieces, tanks, armored vehicles, ammunition travel by rail from uh, Poland and other NATO countries into Ukraine. And what's funny about that is that sounds to me like in war legitimate targets, rail, because if their weapons are coming that way, as opposed to civilian populations, which they have been hitting from the beginning. So it's like, pardon us while we hit illegitimate targets and not legitimate. Why why did they do that? I I don't understand why they've waited till now to hit rail. Is it that they were thinking they were going to conquer the country fast enough that they could use the rail themselves or what was I, I think that very well could be part of it. The Russians use rail for the transport of their uh, equipment as well. So they don't want to destroy something they might want to use. But it's a combination of these factors. What Anne talked about, they want to intimidate Western leaders from, from coming into Ukraine via rail or car caravans. And now, more perhaps more importantly, they want to block the supply uh, of heavy equipment to Ukrainian forces. 
Uh, this is a question I have for you, Anne, in terms of their killing civilian populations and also just the ineffectiveness very often of their military. It, is that a sign of just incompetence and uh, not having control of their troops? Or is it deliberate? What, what, is, what is all that? So I'm afraid that the targeting of civilians um, and the, the random murder of civilians in occupied territories appears to be a policy. Um, the, the policy is both to intimidate and frighten Ukrainians, but also they're intending to take over parts of Ukraine and to establish a different regime. And so when they take over new territory, they murder, kidnap, um, disappear the various mayors and local leaders. They sometimes, I mean, there's a, there's a case of them kidnapping and, um, a, a museum director, other kinds of people who are influential in the local area or in the city. They then use random violence on the population. That can include torture. It can include murder and rape. They take down Ukrainian flags. They've been putting up Soviet flags. They've been putting up uh, Lenin statues. I think this is because the modern ideology of Russia is so empty. There's nothing there that's attractive. Therefore, they're putting up these old Soviet symbols in, the, in, in order to demonstrate some kind of historical, I don't know, nostalgic sense of unity. Um, but it's, of course, that also has the opposite effect. To, to most people, it's just frightening and weird. But the idea is to eradicate Ukrainians and Ukrainian-ness and to eliminate Ukraine as a nation to whatever degree is possible. So in that sense, it's a kind of genocidal project. The idea is to wipe out Ukraine, to wipe out the nation as a nation. Um, and it's, I should say, it's not the first time that Moscow has tried this in Ukraine. Well, Stalin, of course. Yes. St Stalin, you can, you can point to two, two moments when Stalin, Stalin in the 1930s um, uh, had a, organized an artificial famine in Ukraine. So that, that meant that food was actually confiscated from people. Um, you know, many millions, up, up to four million people died. Um, and then in the wake of that, there was this mass arrest of Ukrainian intellectuals. I never understood that. How do you do an artificial famine? The artificial famine was not the product of drought. It wasn't a natural event. What happened was that the Soviet government organized these small teams of activists who actually went house to house in Ukraine and confiscated people's food. And that meant grain, it meant vegetables, sometimes it meant livestock, leaving them with absolutely nothing. And that meant that people ate bark, they ate grass, they ate mice. Um, there were some incidents of cannibalism and up to 4 million people died. In the, in the months after that had happened, the Soviet regime then began a mass arrest of Ukrainian leaders, intellectuals, writers, historians, artists, um, even members of the Ukrainian Communist Party. So it was a kind of dual attack on Ukraine as a nation, both both the peasants and the and the intellectuals and the leaders. Uh, and that, of course, is a story that all Ukrainians know. And so when they look at Russian behavior in the occupied territories of Ukraine and they see these same kinds of actions, you know, same arrest of leadership, same random violence, um, it triggers a lot of historical memories and people become even angrier and even more determined to resist. Did Putin, we saw this right at the beginning and everyone, or not everyone, but I heard, oh, well, Putin's going to do the, get to Kiev in four days. And did Putin think he was going to do this in four days? Did, did they underestimate the uh, Ukrainian people? Uh, what the hell happened here? 
So I, Putin essentially believed his own propaganda. So he believed that Ukraine doesn't exist. It's not a real country. There are no Ukrainians and they won't support their government. You know, he knows very little about modern Ukraine. He knew nothing about, for example, the massive Ukrainian military reforms that have taken place over the last eight years and the ways in which Ukrainians learned to operate. He didn't count on the Ukrainian public mobilizing and for this massive numbers of people signing up to join the territorial army. And I think he he simply misunderstood that. I think he also misunderstood his own forces, and as did many others. I mean, really, people have been missile counting in Russia. You know, how much new stuff do they have and how many soldiers do they have on the ground? And we didn't account for the fact that the Russian army is profoundly corrupt, that probably half the amount of material that's supposed to be there isn't there, and the money instead is used to build some villa in the south of France. You know, they didn't account for the fact that Russian conscripts were not at all excited to invade Ukraine. Many of them actually seem to have gone into the country without having any sense of where they were or even that this was a war. Um, there was no preparation for it. There was no particular desire to have a fight in Ukraine on the, on the part of many of them. And there are a few sadists who seem to be keen to be there, but many of them didn't want to be. And, you know, really their misunderstanding was often passed on to the West, you know, because Western experts who study Russia were reading Russian military documents and Russian military doctrine, and they were listening to what the Russians were saying. And they also thought that Russia would be in Kiev in three days. And Really, the underestimation of Ukraine and the underestimation of what it means to really want to defend your own country is one of the great lessons of this war. Can I add a couple of points there? No. <laughs> <laughs> Let me barge in anyway. Okay. <laughs> I, I completely agree with everything Ann said, but let me add two other fa factors in Putin's underestimation. He underestimated Zelensky. I mean, I, I don't think we can make too much of how important it was his decision to stay in Kyiv and not flee the way, for example, the Afghanistan president did, and that what that did to rally the Ukrainian forces and convince them to stand their ground and fight, and that they had the government behind them. And then Zelensky's role in mobilizing a European opinion in, in favor of Ukraine has just been phenomenal. I mean, you, basically every day Ukraine is winning the information war on this conflict. And here's another underestimation. I think he underestimated Biden. I think he thought the, yeah. the, the, the West was weakened, was divided, that Biden was had seen his best days behind him. But you got to hand it at this administration. I mean, not just in comparison to the previous administration, it would have been a disaster if Trump had still been president of the United States, but in how well he's managed this fight, one, to unify the allies, and two, to incrementally continue to step up the level of assistance that we're giving to the Ukrainians, so as not to do something that's too rash to provoke an overreaction from, from Putin, but is uh, enough to give them what they need and to keep expanding the space and in the process bring more and more countries to the side of this Western effort. The 40-nation conference that was held recently at, uh, at in, in Germany to coordinate the military supply is just an, an example of that. The speed with which Sweden and Finland are now talking about joining the NATO alliance is another example of that. None of that was in Putin's calculations. Well, what uh, Frank Four uh, was an early guest after the war started, and he was talking about Biden's diplomacy here and a couple of Biden's decisions to, for example, release the intelligence we were getting from Russia 
I, I thought that allowed us to put sanctions together because it takes a while to put sanctions together. And that was really effective. Yeah, both in preventing uh, Putin from making some fake rationale for the war that they were attacked by Ukraine or, or something. So they prohibited, prohibited that. And by putting all the countries on alert, look, this is coming. This is happening. We have to get ready for this. It gave us two, three, maybe more weeks of, of warning time before the invasion came. And I, I keep hoping that someone will kill Putin. Don't <laughs> tell Putin I said that. I'll, but, I'll, be, I'll keep it quiet. Okay, thanks. But... Um, <laughs> Aren't there people around him going like, man, you you fucked up or he fucked up. They don't say it to him. But is there any hope for something like that? I don't know how well you know the inside of the Kremlin or. The trouble is that it's not just a question of, um, you know, who would kill him or could someone kill him or who would replace him. We don't actually know uh, what is the mechanism by which the next leader of Russia would be chosen or who are the people who are close enough to him to make that decision. So this is not the Soviet Union. There is no Politburo. There is no Soviet Communist Party. There is no leadership council with a formal role who decides who runs the country. And so what we would have is a kind of secession crisis, of which there's actually a long tradition in older Russian history. But there isn't any formal way of changing the leadership. And that means that it's simply impossible for anyone outside to guess. There's clearly a lot of discontent in the Russian elite. There actually have been some leaders of the Russian security services who've been arrested. There have been a whole bunch of mysterious deaths in the business community and elsewhere. It's some of the Russian oligarchs, some of the wealthier Russians have spoken out against the war. You know, you also have the, the spectacle of, I mean, literally tens of thousands, you know, we've talked a lot about Ukrainian refugees, but there are tens of thousands of Russians have left the country. You know, they're in Istanbul, they're in Tbilisi, they're in Yerevan, they're all over Europe. And they're leaving because they hate the war and because they realize that the sanctions are the end of a kind of Russia integrated with the world that they were happy to live in and work in. And so there's a lot of discontent, but there isn't a institutional mechanism for focusing it. And that's why I am really reluctant to speculate and I'm reluctant to do any wishful thinking about it. I mean, your instinct is right, I'll say in one way, which is that even if we have the best possible outcome, so even if Ukraine wins and they evict the Russians from all the occupied territory in Ukraine, and even if there is some kind of deal or treaty at the end of the fighting that, that formally ends the conflict, then what? So then does Russia regroup and invade again in three years? You know, do we have to give some kind of guarantees to Ukraine? Like what happens after that? And the reason why it's so hard to think about that is because with Putin in the picture, it's very hard to come up with a long term, um, a long term end of the conflict. You know, this is such a key point uh, on, on this. Since the beginning of the pandemic, I've become a student of the fall of civilizations, very interested in, in why empires collapse. And one of the reasons, in addition to climate change, is the succession problem that you talk about, Anne, that the, the emperor, the, the ruler, hasn't prepared the state for the transition. And we got to be very careful here because we do not want a failed Russia. 
That is not what we want to see at the end of this war. We want to see the invasion fail. And I thought Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin put it very well. We want to weaken Russia so that they can't do this again. But notice he didn't say we want to collapse the Russian state. You do not want a repeat of the, of the, the fears and the, and the uncertainty that followed the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 when you had a real loose nukes problem. We also don't have any control over that. We don't have any influence over what happens in Russia, honestly. Right, but it depends how you calibrate how much we do and when and how do we do it. For example, if Russia retreats from Ukraine, do we then lift the sanctions or do we keep them on? We got to manage this extremely delicately so that Russia is weakened so much that it, it loses this war. It, it has to retreat from the war, but not so much that there's an uncontrolled collapse of the state. I didn't think an uncontrolled collapse of the state is on the cards. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, and as I said, I think we have even our sanctions have less influence on internal Russian politics than we think they do. I, you know, they are now a useful lever. We can, when the conflict, you know, assuming the fighting eventually ends, they are something that we can use as a part of the final negotiation. But, but I would be hesitant about imagining that we can shape what happens mm-hmm. inside Russia. Good point. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with our discussion with Ann Applebaum and Joe Cirincioni on Ukraine and Russia. This episode is brought to you by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. We're back with Ann Applebaum and Joe Cirincioni. I remember when, um, before we went into Iraq, there was always talk about, we're not supposed to be able to assassinate foreign dictators, right? That's against our own laws. But every once in a while, someone would bring up, maybe we should take out uh, Saddam Hussein. And I remember I was on like Bill Maher's show and I just said, well, like, for example, during World War II, a lot of people were saying, let's take out Hitler, but you could have gotten someone a lot worse than Hitler. And that joke worked then. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. I, I mean, p- playing around with who's worse than Putin, you can, you can lose your mind. I mean, <laughs> you know, my, one of my favorite versions of that is there was a, I once went and dug up um, obituaries of Stalin. Um, and there was one in the Times of London. 
back when that was the sort of newspaper of record. It was very long. It's kind of two full pages in the newspaper. And one of the lines, and it was something like, well, now that Mr. Stalin is gone, we have to fear the hardliners waiting in the wings. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the same joke. They stole my joke. Like 30 years earlier or whatever it was. That's funny. But yeah, so we have no control over is what you're saying. So why bother to, but I mean, it might be something we have to worry about, right? I mean, it would be a nice problem to have right now, honestly. Yes, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and who knows? It might. It may very well be our problem. So right now, what's the new change in the war? The change in the war is they're beginning to bomb rail and they're beginning to bomb infrastructure, or what? What's the new change? Those are certainly Russian tactics that have changed a bit. I would say the what we, what's new sort of this week as we're talking is that the Russian offensive in the east is not going very well. A week ago when they were starting this and they were doing this heavy bombardment, it really looked like they were going to grind down the Ukrainian defensive forces. And while the situation on, the, on the, that front line is grim, the Russians have not advanced very much. There's nothing like the methodical advance that we that they were planning and that we feared would happen. Very often, their advances are temporary. They take a town and then they retreat, and the Ukrainian forces retake it. So I believe that these next couple of weeks are going to be very crucial in this war. If the Ukrainian forces can blunt this offensive, it's very possible that Russia will not be able to continue this level of combat activity on the Eastern Front, and the whole thing could just stall out and maybe even fall back. It's it's, it's tricky business predicting what's going to happen. I mean, we could be looking at months of fighting. We could be looking at years of a sustained conflict between Ukraine and, and Russian forces over this disputed area. But a lot depends, I think, on whether they can break through uh, the defensive fortifications that the Ukrainians have constructed over the last eight years and, and seize all of the Donbass region. So far, they failed. The Ukrainian people are, are remarkable. And I think you're right. Zelensky's leadership is, is a part of this, but there's more to it than that, right? Yes, uh, absolutely. And the Ukrainians are defending their land. As Anne said, Putin underestimated the power of Ukrainian nationalism. This is often a misunderstanding and an error that countries making invading others. They un- misunderstand how strong pe- the population feels about their national identity, about their culture, and how willing they are to do everything they can, including fight to the death to resist the invading force. And in 2014, obviously, they invaded Crimea and not, but the the four years or the, the eight years in between, the U- Ukrainians built up their forces, right? Yes. I mean, the invasion of Crimea took place at a moment when Ukraine didn't have a president and when Ukraine was totally unprepared, um, kind of mentally and in other ways for this kind of invasion. And over the last eight years, First of all, they've been fighting this nonstop war with Russia in the eastern territories. And there are a lot of veterans now and people with experience of combat in the country, which wasn't the case um, previously. Um, and they've also done this massive, you know, look at their own forces. How do we fight? How do we modernize? Uh, you know, for aficionados of military tactics, what they've done is they institute, instituted what we call an NCO system, non-commissioned officers. So that what that means really is that the Ukrainians are able to make decisions on the ground. Whereas the Russians are still getting orders from headquarters or from Moscow and they are, the Russian forces aren't as flexible. They can't make decisions. And so the different thinking about how to fight, 
practicing with different kinds of weapons, access to, to Western training as well on the part of some Ukrainians. Um, that's made a difference. But also, as I said, in the intervening eight years, they've had two democratically elected presidents. They've had um, not exactly peaceful politics. It's actually a very divided country. They have very anger and bitter politics, not unlike everybody else's. But it's been their politics. It hasn't been dictated from somebody else. And so um, they've had this experience really running themselves without any Russian inter interference. Um, and I think people are willing to defend that. I should say another aspect of that is that in each one of these towns, there is a local mayor or local leaders who are elected and therefore have legitimacy. So these aren't some kind of people appointed by the central government. They're local people with legitimacy. They are able to call on the population to do things. The population will listen to them. And this also has an effect. In other words, the fact that Ukraine is a democracy, the fact that people respect the government is legitimate, that they are willing to defend their own leaders and their own system um, is also a factor in this kind of intangible thing that I think neither the Russians nor really Washington took into account. How, how many refugees are there now internal in the country, but also who have left uh, Ukraine? So I keep hearing different estimates and they're changing every day. Um, I've heard an, a number of three million who've left. Um, although stipulate that some are coming back. And I imagine that there are as many, again, displaced inside Ukraine. Um, you know, I, I just spoke last night to somebody who's from a city in Western Ukraine who said, oh, the population there has doubled because mm -hmm. it's mostly people moving into people they know's homes. In, and I should say that the refugee movement, and certainly into Poland, but into some of Eastern Europe looks like that too. It's not a sort of government organized reception of refugees. It's a lot of grassroots organization. Now, the images you see are always just these bombed out areas, all this infrastructure that's, you know, the, the, the collapse that's been blown apart. What percentage of the country is that? Is that like 1% of the country? I mean, or is it if, if you just look at that, that footage from over there, you get a feeling of the whole country leveled. No, the whole country is not leveled. Um, at, you know, large parts of the central part of the country haven't been touched at all. Most of Western Ukraine hasn't been touched at all. I mean, I was, I was actually on one of those trains about two weeks ago, and you don't see any war damage from the train coming in from, from Poland. And what does that mean for agriculture? In other words, we're talking about famines and breadbasket, and we know that both Russia and Ukraine are sort of breadbaskets to the world. What, what's the effect on that? So there may be an enormous effect, partly because it does seem that the Russians are targeting agriculture. So they targeted grain silos and things like that. More importantly, the ports are blocked. And so the normal Ukrainian export of grain isn't happening um, the way it used to be. And that will have an impact not just in the region, but around the world. I mean, there are countries like Egypt that import most of their grain from Ukraine or from Ukraine and Russia. And elsewhere in the Middle East, a lot of, a lot of food, you know, bread is, essentially comes from, comes from that source. And we could very well see both higher bread prices and maybe food shortages uh, as a result of the war. Yeah, you read about that in possible famine places, et cetera, because of this, which is pretty ugly. But yeah, I was just, because you don't, it's hard to get an image in your head of what the country looks like and of how much of the how much of the crop survives and how it is shipped. I mean, I don't have any statistics for you off the top of my head. Um, right. 
But, you know, my, my guess is that a lot of agriculture is proceeding normally. You know, you've seen all the farmers and tractors dragging tanks along, but I mean, there are all, mm-hmm. a lot of tractors still, still in Ukraine doing, actually doing agriculture work. I, a lot of it's proceeding normally, but the problem is going to be the export of it. And can they get to ports and can you get, you know, tankers into those ports to take the grain to Egypt? If, if one of Russia's aims in this war is to control the food crops of Ukraine, uh, which is, we just talked, make up a, a healthy percentage of the source of wheat uh, in the world, one of the things you want to do is control the shipping ports. So that's what Russia has been attacking in the southern part of the country. So Kershan, which they've captured, is a grain shipping port. Mariupol is a grain shipping port. Odessa, a grain shipping port. And this may be, you know, one of Putin's war aims to control these ports and therefore control Ukraine's uh, grain. And, and do they control Odessa now? Not you know no this is okay. this is what what we believe is one of the long term aims. One of the Russian generals just last week said that their aim was to consolidate control over the southern uh, port and establish sure. um, a corridor through Crimea and all the way to Moldova, which would include Odessa. But but they haven't done that. And no, is that is that where that ship their their big ship was sunk near Off Odessa? the coast? Yes, the the Neptune missiles that sank the um, the cruiser Moskova. Was um, were fired from uh, around Odessa. <laughs> okay, well, this could go on. We don't know, right? We just don't know. If you're looking for an if you're looking for an end game, no, we don't know. Um, it, it will essentially a lot of it is you know to return to the previous topic. A lot of it is in Putin's head. Um, he could declare victory at any moment. You know, for any reason, because as we said, discussed, you know, he controls the media inside Russia and victory or the war aims or what he decides it is. And if he decides to retreat and to say, right, we may, you know, Crimea is ours or something, then that's the end of the war. You know, there's a lot of conversation about, you know, what should the Ukrainians do or not do? It's really about what the, when the Russians will stop. Because this is their invasion. They launched it. Their, their war aims have clearly changed um, and they can decide what will end it. Do we have any idea of the figures in terms of, of dead and casualties on either side or both sides? So the Ukrainians are keeping track. They do publish um, Russian losses, and they claim uh, it's now over 20,000, something like 22,000 Russian soldiers have been killed by their count, which would mean that there's probably two or three times as many wounded. Um, and we know, by the way, that the, there are many wounded, for example, in Belarus, there were hospitals were set up there. They are not publishing casualties for their own side, but I would guess it must be about the same. So it's a, it's already, um, it's already a much larger war than any of those that have been fought in, in recent years by the U.S., for example. And, and how do 22,000 dead soldiers come back without the people in Russia noticing? It's hard for me to imagine how that happens, but um, it, it all depends on how much pressure they put on the families um, and how much they insist on them keeping it secret. And we know there's a precedent for that in that soldiers who were killed in Donbass during the last eight years, because there's been this ongoing fighting, um, have often been buried in unmarked graves or their families have been told not to speak about it. So there may even be right now a campaign to tell military families and find ways of financially or otherwise coercing them to keep silent. Okay. So it sounds like this is going to go on for a while. And I, I, I just don't see Putin giving up any time, but I don't know him. 
<laughs> you know, uh, yeah. you, you know, when you're dealing with stuff that's happening inside one guy's head, right, it's yeah. really almost stupid to speculate. I mean, right. As I said, he could end the war. He could say, right, these were my war aims, you know, and I've achieved them. He could do it right. on May the 9th next week when they celebrate, you know, the end of the Second World War, the anniversary of that. And, and it is also true, as Joe said, that there is also a point at which the Russians can't keep going because they've run out of soldiers and equipment and sort of battle ready equipment and they have to stop. There are reasons to think that it could stop earlier than some years. Yeah. And, you know, the U.S. intelligence reports on the combat effectiveness of the Russian forces continues to decline. So most most recently, for example, U.S. officials estimated that fully one quarter of the Russian invasion force is no longer combat effective. That is, they sustained casualties of at least 10% of their force, rendering them combat ineffective. And, and this is, continues to, to mount and repeated reports of low morale, logistical problems, even in these shortened supply lines that uh, characterize the fighting in the Donbass region. So as Anne says, a lot of people are looking at May 9th as well. What Putin says on Victory Day, when we'll have the military parade through the um, Red Square, etc. If he recognizes this, that that he's not going to be able to sustain this, he may declare victory and use the the sham referendums he's staging in the Donbass region, where they will declare independence, declare an independent People's Republic of this or that oblast, and he may use that as an example, and then just, you know just try to move to annex those lands. On the other hand, he may declare that this special military operation is actually a war enabling him to um, in, impose even more draconian functions on, on the Russian population, including his ability to conscript troops for the fight. And he could decide, that he, no, he's settling down for the long haul. and He's going to do this for months more, maybe years more. When you have a dictator, as Anne says, just determining the course of the war, you just don't know which way this is going to go. What was interesting to me was how much the Ted Cruz's and Tucker Carlson's of this world were going like, I tell you, a military that really works. It's this macho Russian. You know, they ain't putting pregnant women doing logistics. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they, they bought <laughs> into know? the... They bought into the whole myth of the strong man, the shirtless Putin on a horse myth. And is, and, and people have underestimated the effect of kleptocracy on the combat effectiveness of the troops. As Ann pointed out, look, we have problems of waste, fraud, and abuse in our Pentagon. A lot of the money we spend on the military does not go to combat effective ends. But it is an order of magnitude worse in the kleptocracy that is modern day Russia. Uh, and and, and you know, if you think that funds are being siphoned off for for you know things like uh, oil and grain production and manufacturing production well, why do you think the military is going to be exempt for that you know a good portion of the funds that russia is spending on its military never end up providing any military benefit at all and we're seeing the result of that in this failed invasion well thank you guys this is uh, very eye opening and uh, i i have a feeling we're going to uh, this is going on a while, but I hope I'm wrong. I hope I hope uh, Putin just uh, snatches victory and announces it, and everyone goes, "Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Way to go! That was great!" <laughs> Next, <laughs> Jesus Christ! Oh, what a sad fucking thing! I'm sorry. Well, that that summarizes it, huh? It really does. There Thank you. Go. you. The best summary. Well, you know, 
Jewish comedians, Zelensky, me. <laughs> you and Zelensky. <laughs> I haven't heard him crack too many jokes lately, though. No, he he's he's he makes he doesn't really do jokes, but he makes sardonic comments. He does, he does a form of you can tell what his background was. In in war, sardonic comments count as jokes. Yes, we'll leave on that. In war, sardonic comments count as jokes. And thank you. This has been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Likewise. Joe, uh, always. Thank you for having me on, Al. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuel, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.